welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Rose McDermott, Professor of International Relations at Brown University. Rose, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, John. You've recently published a paper in the journal International Security on the psychology of nuclear brinkmanship. Before we actually get into the argument of the paper, uh, I've got a sort of table-setting question. What do you mean when you say that the IR literature on nuclear brinkmanship discounts humans? There's two parts to that answer, actually. Um, one is that there's a whole series of arguments in international relations that sort of assume away individuals. They think that because the meaningful interactions are between states, um, that what really determines behavior is the environment and the situation. And let's say, for example, your material resources and the size of your military and things like that. And so um, what that means is that if you follow the logic of that, uh, any given leader in the same situation will behave the same way. So that the constraints and incentives of the situation in the international environment are so powerful that um, it would make a given individual behave the same way. Um, taken to its logical extreme is kind of absurd, right? I mean, it would assume that, you know, if you plop uh, Bill Clinton or Barack Obama into Germany in 1933, they'd act just like Hitler, right? But that basically is the argument of a lot of uh, realist arguments in international relations and other arguments like that. Um, the second part of that is that um, a lot of the arguments assume that not just individuals um, don't make a difference, but that they're interchangeable, that they would, um, you know, be overridden by all kinds of things, including especially recently technology, right? So if you sort of defer to some kind of automatic uh, system or artificial intelligence or something like that, then um, the individual sort of gets excluded from the situation. Um, and um, uh, the arguments that that I put forward with my co-author, Reed Pauly, um, is to basically say, wait a minute, um, this is too uh, simple, too easy. People really do matter. People really are different. Um, they behave in different ways based on internal as well as external uh, incentives and constraints. And so it's really important to make sure that... Um, we take that into consideration when we think about outcomes that matter in international relations. Right. So basically, you're you're kind of taking that rational actor model and um, saying it's more complicated than that. And you highlight the centrality of conscious choice that leaders must undertake in deciding to use nuclear weapons. So again, before we jump in too deeply, can you tease out Thomas Schelling's contributions to how we think about nuclear brinkmanship? What is brinkmanship as a strategy? Uh, what's a threat that leaves something to chance? And then maybe you can tell us why Schelling's work falls short. Uh, Schelling's work is really monumental. I mean, he's sort of the foundations of nuclear deterrence in many ways are built on his work, which was done uh, at the Rand Corporation in the 1950s. And um, he later in life won the Nobel in economics for it, well-deserved. Um, and he had many, many important concepts in nuclear deterrence, but one of them was this notion of threats that leave something to chance. Um, and his idea here was that um, uh, 
you could one side could make a threat to the other side and um, it would leave an element of chance and then everybody could end up with a conflict that nobody wants. Um, so his analogy, which is a very useful one, is about climbers who are tied together on a mountain. And um, these climbers are tied together on a mountain with a rope, you know, as you would on any kind of um, high, high climb. And um, one of them could walk a little bit closer to the edge. Maybe they could dance a little bit on the edge. Um, one of them could then fall and take them both down, even though the intention wasn't to take them both down. They can take a chance or take a risk that could threaten both of them. Um, and this was a very important concept and a very important insight into um, the way that nuclear deterrence puts all countries uh, on the edge of sort of existential destruction. Um, and that we're sort of beholden to our enemies as well as our allies for our survival in that way. Um, what we were trying to do with this particular concept was to unpack the psychological underpinnings of it. And rather than just accept it as um, a rational choice model, to use your phrase, which is the right way to think about it, to say, what are the micro foundations of this? What actually plays into the psychological formation of um, chance and choice so that you have a choice to take a chance and there is an element of chance, but um, there's still an element of intention, that the individual can have an intention that's, that makes a choice to uh, dance on the edge of the mountain, to throw the steering wheel out the window, to do things that um, can place themselves and the other uh, side at risk, um, to show determination, to show commitment uh, in ways that they may think manipulates the other side to do what they want, but in fact may risk the safety and security of both sides at the same time. Okay, so a threat that leaves something to chance allows the coercer to inject uncertainty into their threats to kind of knowingly reduce their agency and thus make what would otherwise be an irrational threat more credible. But you guys point out that these situations still don't fully eliminate agency. Uh, a leader is still making a choice one way or the other, and you're arguing that the vagaries of human psychology are actually where that risk and uncertainty lies. Do I have that right? Exactly. Yes, that's okay. exactly right. So basically, people can be more or less rational, which is something weirdly that a lot of strategists and IR theorists seem to reject. You mentioned at the beginning, like that it seems like a logical absurdity, but it, it does drive a lot of the thinking in uh, this area. So can you just say what you think about that. What, what's the state of the scholarship on this where people are ready to deny differences in human cognitive traits? Yeah, I mean, I think you put your finger on it with this notion of rationality. And I think that there's a couple of pieces to it. One is that people have really different definitions of what constitutes rationality, right? So for some people, rationality is just this economic cost-benefit analysis where, you know, you do an expected utility calculation have a bunch of choices and you choose the one that has the greatest um, probability of giving you the outcome that you want the most. Um, um, there's a lot of other people that think of rationality um, as um, basically some version of not being crazy, right? So you're, you don't suffer from some kind of severe mental illness. 
Um, and so different people have different notions about what constitutes rationality, and they aren't always the same, and they don't always know that they have different definitions. They use the same word, but they have different things. Um, you know, I think that it's not um, a terribly helpful concept in that regard. Um, so, you know, from a psychological perspective, it's um, less interesting and important to think about somebody being... Um, able to engage in a cost-benefit analysis as thinking about can somebody adapt in a flexible and effective way to um, immediate threats and risks in um, a time-urgent manner, right? So if you're confronted with something and you sort of think quickly on your feet and make efficient choices, um, and can those choices... Um, protect yourself and your state or your community? Um, or is it driven by your own internal um, drives? And by that, I mean, there's a lot of mental illness, right? We have a lot of discussion in society about mental illness at all levels, especially since the pandemic, uh, the raging rates of depression and anxiety and so on. But I think that it's very obvious looking around the world that lots of leaders are very narcissistic, right? So they're much more concerned about their own personal ambitions, their own personal goals, their own personal money, wealth, whatever it is that they care about, legacy, um, than they are about the prosperity and uh, safety of their populations. Um, and we, we see myriad examples of it, right? I mean, it's not just Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. It's Kevin McCarthy refusing to, uh, you know, uh, negotiate with the Democrats over the um, continuing resolution for funding them. Right. Like many, many, many examples of leaders making a choice to privilege their own interests over those of the population that they should be representing or that they have committed to represent. Those kinds of drives um, can still influence their behavior in ways that threaten all of us. And so um, and it, it's not just narcissism. Right. We can think about paranoia. There's lots of different kinds of psychological elements. Does it make somebody irrational in the sense that if you talk to them, you would think they were crazy sometimes, but sometimes not. Right. Um, and so I think that the concept of rationality in this um, uh, way is not necessarily as helpful as thinking about the underlying psychological motives and drives that somebody has. Um, in incentivizing and constraining their behavior. Does that make sense? I want to take the opportunity. Yes, absolutely. I want to take the opportunity to emphasize one aspect of that answer because it's something that I've tried to explain to political neophytes in my life. And, that, and I think it's hard for people to appreciate necessarily, but it's the selection effect of politics. How, you know, the first of all, like you said, the qualities that would make someone aspire to national office. It's sort of readily acknowledged around the dinner table that you have to kind of be narcissistic. But it's also true that the, the, the traits that make one a good candidate in a campaign are very much not the traits that make one a good statesman uh, or stateswoman. Um, can you just talk a little bit more about that? We're not necessarily dealing with a blank slate here. We're dealing with selection effects that make leaders certain kinds of people. Yes. And I think that's exactly right. So certain people put themselves forward uh, for political office. I mean, sometimes you have hereditary things where, you know, you sort of fall into leadership, North Korea, you know, your father is the leader, you're the leader. Um, 
And monarchies are like that, too, although in these modern days, monarchies don't necessarily have the political power that they did in the past, but there's still a hereditary element to it. But certainly in Western democracies, um, uh, leaders have to strive for um, political power. They run for office. They campaign against other people. And so there is exactly what you say, selection effects. People are some people are choosing to do that. And other people who might be very effective, very loyal, very dedicated uh, public servants choose not to do it because they don't want to put themselves in that fray. Like normal people wouldn't want to be, you know, on the campaign trail 24 seven um, away from their families, spending all their spare time trying to raise money, um, being under scrutiny from media constantly. It's not something that um, the majority of people would find enjoyable, even if they felt like they had a duty to uh, uh, engage in some kind of public service or wanted to engage in that public service. Now, obviously, there's a spectrum, right? Like not everybody is super extreme on one end or the other, but um, the, there's self-selection. People choose to be in that situation. Even in authoritarian regimes, you rise up um, through the ranks through by choosing to make certain decisions at certain times that either eliminate you from contention for leadership or move you forward for contention for leadership. And so um, there is self-selection and the char characteristics that make somebody want to be in that position are exactly, as you say, not necessarily the same characteristics that would make you a great leader, that would allow you to engage in effective governance, that would allow you to make the kinds of um, choices that would be best for your population as opposed to yourself. And there is survey work, in fact, that shows like which occupations are most likely to be narcissistic. Not surprising. Politicians, celebrities, academics. Which populations are most likely to be psychopaths, right? The psychopath is different than being a narcissist, right? A psychopath is somebody who no guilt, no remorse for engaging in violence against other people. Again, no surprise. Politicians, academics, right? So... Um, you're talking about groups of populations that, on average, are much more narcissistic, much more psychopathic through this process of self-selection than almost any other uh, occupation except academics. <laughs> um, that's a whole so, other tangent, I think. Yeah, that's a whole um, other tangent. <laughs> Anybody who's been a faculty meeting knows it's true. What are your thoughts on the coercive utility of nuclear weapons? You um, deal with the work of Todd Sexer and, and Matt Furman. Uh, I read that book. I found it rather persuasive that uh, nuclear weapons are kind of like big, dumb bombs that don't have much utility. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think their work is important. And um, it's also a bit of a conundrum, right? Um, nuclear weapons have no course of power until they do. And um, we've been very fortunate or very strategic, depending on your perspective, to not have had nuclear weapons used since, you know, 75 years, since um, uh, 1945 in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when the Americans dropped the bomb on the Japanese at the end of the Second World War. Um, and, you know, as a tangent, that's also a very interesting case of um, not just a failure of deterrence, but I think a particular kind of motivation. Um, and um, but now you see someone, particularly like Vladimir Putin, who's trying to use nuclear weapons in a coercive fashion to say, you know, um, 
if you uh, uh, engage in a certain kind of behavior in Ukraine, I'm going to move my nuclear weapons closer to the border. I'm going to use my teeny tiny nuclear weapons and then my big bad nuclear weapons, you know. Um, and the idea is that it stops um, or it attempts to coerce the other side into not doing something they don't want. What's interesting about um, the situation in Ukraine is there's been a lot of, you know, threats, but you haven't actually seen him go through with it. In Ukraine, I think that in the absence of nuclear weapons, it could have been a very different outcome, right? The United States or some of the other NATO forces could have easily put boots on the ground, quite quickly um, pushed the Russian army back because, especially in the early days of the war, you saw that they were not the military that um, uh, the Western forces had expected them to be. Um, and that would have been that. But we didn't because of nuclear weapons, right? Because of the threat that Putin would use nuclear weapons. So in that regard, it had a particular kind of coercive power. Now, would we have done, would we have actually put boots on the ground and, you know, supported Ukraine and gone through, you know, that's, that's an empirical question. I don't know. But it's very clear that the limited constraint is nuclear weapons. Now, they haven't been used, like I said, since 1975, and I think it's made us a little complacent that that means they'll never be used, right? Like, okay, they haven't been used in 75 years, and so they won't be used. But people are still alive who remember when they were used, right? It's not so long ago um, that it's outside uh, a generational remembrance. Um, and because they were used once, because every weapon that's been invented in human history has eventually been used, it's possible that they could be used again. Um, and I don't think that we should be quite as complacent as a lot of um, the public, a lot of the scholarship is that uh, deterrence is super stable. It has been stable, but we don't know that it's been stable because it works so much as we, it's been stable because we've been lucky. Um, and there may be an element of both. Uh, some of it certainly rests on the fact that not a tremendous number of nations have had nuclear weapons. That's increasing. More nations have nuclear weapons. That raises the risk just statistically, probability. Um, more weapons, more states with weapons. Um, and it becomes more difficult to negotiate and control. And um, that in and of itself raises the risk. And I think we rely too much on assumptions of deterrence that rely, again, on notions of rationality um, broadly construed. Uh, in leadership that may or may not be accurate. Um, and that worries. I think it's not as stable as uh, a lot of scholarship assumes or wants to assume, right? There's there's a lot of uh, wish fulfillment here. Um, you know, uh, if I believe it's stable, then I don't have to worry about it. Uh, maybe it's not so stable. Maybe you should worry about it. So in the paper, you guys explore three mechanisms as sources of risk in nuclear brinkmanship, accidents, self-control, and control of others. Uh, you write a lot about each, and we'll continue teasing out the material as we go here, but do you want to kind of summarize each of these and explain what's important about them? Yeah, so these were three areas where we were really trying to think about the difference between chance and choice, um, that there is an element of chance um, uh, dancing on the edge of the mountain, um, but there's also choice of how close you go to the end of the mountain. Um, there's there's 
aspects that um, allow you to disentangle these things. And we talk about it through these three mechanisms that you just described. Um, the first being accidents. So accidents can just be something that nobody expects, nobody predicts. Um, that um, can just be uh, um, something like a mechanical failure, right? So you have, um, uh, for example, let's say somebody decides to launch a nuclear weapon and it doesn't work, right? Um, that there can be mechanical failures. Now, when the um, decider, um, the recipient of that accident, um, or the coercer, the agency that they maintain, the choice that they maintain happens after the event, um, right? So they don't necessarily cause the accident, but when the accident happens, they have a choice of how to respond. Do you respond to an, to an accidental nuclear launch with a nuclear launch, or do you respond with a conventional force and so on? Uh, the second is uh, our ability to engage in self-control. And this goes back to the issue that you just raised, John, about self-selection, right? Some people who go into political office have better self-control than others. But in general, they may not have as good self-control as like a regular person uh, who has um, a, a different kind of job. There's different elements of self-control, uh, some of which are very um, familiar to individuals uh, around the world. So a simple one is panic. Uh, anybody who's had a panic attack understands that feeling of losing self-control. Um, so you may have agency, you may have the ability to make a choice, but you can't control yourself. Um, severe mental illness is an example of that. Um, narcissism, you know, paranoia, but also things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, right? Somebody who actually has, you know, a severe personality disorder. Again, um, the person may have agency, but they don't have the ability to control themselves. Um, another element of self-control can be misunderstanding or misperceiving an enemy's intentions. So you um, think that you understand what the other side is doing and what they intend and what they want, but you're actually wrong. You're misunderstanding. So again, you have agency, but the actions that you take based on that um, ability are incorrect. They're based on misperception, and that can leave you um, uh, uh, down the wrong path. The reason that's important is that, again, to go back to the notion of deterrence, we may think that we're dealing with, say, an intractable enemy. But that intractable enemy may not be an intractable enemy. That enemy may be really open to negotiation, but we don't see that. We don't understand that. We misperceive it. And so we miss an opportunity for bargaining, negotiation, reconciliation, peace, because we're assuming a series of motives and intentions that may or may not be true. Um, the third mechanism is control of others, right? So you can have accidents that nobody expects. You can have an inability to control yourself. But you can also have an inability to control the other guy, right? So the classic case of this would be pre-delegation. Um, you know, anybody who's seen um, Dr. Strangelove, uh, you know, the dead hand notion, the idea that you give up your choice uh, and turn it over to a machine that has some kind of if-then statement. You know, if this happens, then um, this automatic response happens. We can imagine getting closer and closer to this with 
sophisticated forms of artificial intelligence. In these cases, <clears throat> the person, the leader making the decision, doesn't have agency. We've now turned it over to this third party, to this unauthorized, uh, often automatic um, uh, machine. And so you literally take away that kind of um, choice. Um, you can also imagine um, limited war being a kind of generator of risk where you retain some element of choice, but the adversary also has agency. So it's not just you. You're making choices on your battlefield, but they're making choices on their battlefield. And as we know from, you know, uh, endless cases, the fog of war can make things um, uh, unpredictable. Um, you can also have mischief, right? Bad actors who engage in uh, behavior, third party actors, or even actors within your own side or the other side that just decides to um, change the outcome um, or mess with the outcome for their own reasons that you may or may not know. Um, you know, the fifth column in your element. Um, certainly in um, current political polarized environments, not just in the United States, but in other places where um, politics are quite polarized, you can imagine a domestic opposition doing something to undermine national interest precisely because they don't like their domestic opposition uh, as much as they like the enemy. Um, and that's... Um, I think an increasing concern, particularly in the face of um, polarization and populist uprisings in many Western industrialized democracies. This is more sort of a peripheral curiosity of mine, but I kind of can't resist asking about it. Um, you write, quote, recent examinations of neuroscience based on brain lesion studies demonstrate that emotions are necessary for any form of rational decision making to take place. Fill me in on what that work shows and maybe just talk a bit about how rationality and emotion work together to produce human decisions. Yeah, this is really amazing work that Antonio Damasio um, began in Iowa. Um, and he wrote a book uh, about it called Descartes' Error, and I highly recommend it to people who are interested in the topic, um, along with colleagues, uh, uh, his wife Hannah, Ralph Adolphs, and others. And what they basically did are brain lesions happen for all kinds of reasons. Sometimes people are born with them, but sometimes you can have them from accidents, especially accidents where you're deprived from, um, you know, oxygen for some period of time, diving accidents. Um, sometimes they happen as a result of surgery for brain um, cancer or things like that. Uh, epilepsy often causes um, particular kinds of brain lesions where they'll do a surgery to remove part of the amygdala to reduce the, or other parts of the brain to reduce the incidence of. Um, seizures. And um, so what they did, and this was done uh, in originally in Iowa, so it's called the Iowa cord, uh, uh, card sorting test. Um, and they would take people with these brain lesions and they would have them make decisions. Um, and it would be across a series of cards where in some cards um, you would have um, you know, rewards and costs, like $5, 50 cents, you know, whatever it happens to be. And some decks of cards would have um, uh, costs that were very minor, but added up over time. And others would have very heavy loss early, but also gains late. And so the first time you go through the decks, you don't know. Um, but as you go through the decks, people who have sort of normal brain function 
um, we'll start picking the deck with the highest outcome, the most money that you make at the end, before they know why, right? So they'll say, why are you picking that deck? And they'll go, I don't know, it just feels right. But the people with the brain lesions, particularly with brain lesions in the uh, ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which is the center part of the forehead that connects um, the sort of, you know, um, part of the brain that has emotion with the part of the brain that makes um, uh, uh, decision making about the future and about other things. Um, and so this led to a series of really brilliant and interesting and insightful work that basically said our ability to make decisions rests on these very rapid emotional uh, feelings. Damasio actually locates it in the body. He calls it the somatic marker hypothesis. And the idea is that you actually start having physical feelings um, that indicate to you before you can consciously articulate it, before you can have a quote-unquote rational response saying, oh, well, it's clear that the expected value of this deck of cards is higher than this one, um, that you can... Um, uh, recognize that that's what's in your best interest. And um, people who have particular kinds of brain lesions never get that information. They never get the emotional information. And so they keep picking with deaths that are not um, optimal for them. Um, and he has a great example where he says, you know, one of the problems is people who, you know, are, let's say, a standard economist where you think it's all cost benefit and that there's no emotion in it. One of the things you notice with people who have these kinds of brain lesions is they can't make another appointment in the future, come back at three o'clock on Thursday, because they literally can't figure out. They, they are so consumed with, you know, cost benefit that they don't have access to the thing that allows you to make a really rapid decision, which is the feeling. Like, okay, Thursday at three is fine versus, oh, well, it's possible to do Tuesday at five and Friday at three and, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, and so a lot of our decision actually rests on these emotional factors. Now, historically in psychology and other areas, um, that's been understood to be like bad, right? Like you shouldn't rest your decisions on emotion. Emotion is how you get in trouble. But in fact, um, uh, that's how you make um, the majority of rapid, by and large, mostly efficient decisions. You know, evolution has allowed us to uh, respond to repeated challenges on average, neurocomputationally, uh, in the most effective fashion. It doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. We do. They're often predictable classes of mistakes. Um, but they're less than if we had to spend all the time to calculate cost and benefit in a kind of standard economic model uh, for every single decision you make, including what to buy at the grocery store, what to wear today, what to eat today, you know, really simple things where habit um, is very important. So <clears throat> those kinds of um, uh, efforts in your brain from emotional factors, they just work faster and they work faster for a reason. It allows us to run away from the bear who's coming to get us. It allows us to know um, that you can, you know, um, that you can eat food and that you have certain people you can mate with and certain people you want to kill. And, you know, there's different responses that you have to different classes of people. Um, and that work has been, I think, very important and influential in helping rebalance our understanding of the critical role of emotion in decision making. Um, which had been neglected for some number of years. Now, 
as a tangent, there was a reason it was neglected, right? So the original notions of decision-making and psychology from 100 years ago came out of Freud. And it was all this stuff about sex and death and and people rejected that. And so you had this wave of behaviorism uh, under Skinner and others where it was all like, okay, this is, you know, emotion doesn't matter. Um, and so it took some rebalancing to say emotion matters, but it matters in a different way than we thought. Um, it's not exactly that Freud was wrong. His notion of the unconscious is critical to our understanding of how um, human mental processes work. It's just that the content of that subconscious is quite different than his understanding. Um, and I think, you know, if he were alive today, he would not disagree with that. Uh, he assumed that things would be different. Um, and he was right. I'm constantly blown away when I think about the humanities and all the disciplines in the humanities, just how little we seem to truly understand the object of our study. Um, you've argued with other authors, and you cite this work in the paper that, quote, human psychology, the human psychology of revenge explains why and when policymakers readily commit to otherwise apparently irrational retaliation. The psychology of vengeance underlies the stability of nuclear deterrence far more than a rational theory of nuclear revolution appreciates. Can you just uh, expand that? Yeah. Um, with my colleagues, um, Peter Tommy at Penn State and Anthony Lopez, who's a former graduate student of mine, who's now at the University of uh, uh, Washington, at Washington State at Portland, we wrote a piece in the Texas National Security Review on revenge and the psychology of deterrence. And um, the basic argument that we made is that um, deterrence is ostensibly a rational notion, exactly as um, you and I, John, began speaking about where um, um, the notion of deterrence rests on this idea that we have stability because I'm not going to attack you because I know that you have the ability to annihilate me. And so I have no rational interest in annihilating myself. And so I'm not going to start the first launch. And so we're all stable. The problem is, is that the underlying psychology of why that's stable rests on a notion of revenge. That we all know that if, for example, Russia attacked the United States with massive nuclear weapons, I doubt there's very many Americans who would say, eh, we're not going to do anything. Right? We, you know, even if we're pretty annihilated, and we can't gain from their annihilation. It's not like we're going to go invade Russia and take over Russia. We want them to pay. We want them to pay for what they have done to us. And the natural psychology of somebody hurting you is that you want to hurt them back. And I think anybody holding up the mirror of introspection, even very, very long time sophisticated meditators, the initial impulse is for vengeance. It doesn't mean you act on it, but that's the impulse. And that's, you know, that's kind of human nature instinct. The whole notion of deterrence wouldn't work if we didn't know and believe at some level that that retaliation would happen. Because if you really know, if you really know the other guy isn't going to retaliate, why not launch? Right? So we have this um, patina of a belief that what stabilizes deterrence is this notion that um, self-instinct, self-preservation uh, makes it 
clear that I'm not going to launch on you because you're not going to launch on me. But in fact, really rests on the notion that I know that you actually will do that retaliation and that that revenge um, is historically and conventionally how we have often ended wars, right? Many wars enter negotiation, of course, but if you think about things like World War I or World War II, a lot of it really comes to, down to the fact that you have completely annihilated the opponent's ability to respond in a threatening way to you um, in any meaningful way. Can you talk does that about? Make sense? Yes, it does. Oh. Uh, can you talk about what you call the emotional domain of trust, underappreciated by Schelling and ignored by most rational models of choice? Yeah, you know, trust is such an interesting thing, and I think about it quite a lot um, these days in terms of domestic American politics. Um, but I think people can think about it in their own lives. Trust takes a long, long time to build up and develop. Think about trusting your parent, you know, your partner. Um, the problem is it can also be ruptured evanescently, right? Like you can have, you know, you hear all the time, people are married for 30 years, their partner cheats on them, they thought they had trust, and in one second, all of a sudden, they don't trust. Rebuilding that trust, um, even if you can glue it back together again, there's going to be shatters in it, right? And so the problem with trust is it's very important. And we think about you know, arms control negotiations um, as one example where you have this kind of notion of trust but verify. You trust them, but you verify that they've met their obligations. Um, but oftentimes trust is secondary, right? Like trust is what comes out of behavior that allows you to believe that the other side is doing what they say they're going to do. Um, and the problem is people treat it like trust should happen first, that you should trust somebody and then you shouldn't have to worry, right? Um, but trust comes out of that behavior. And so having small ways in which you engage in trust-building exercises, right, the way that companies sometimes do, where you learn about the limits of the other side's um, reliability, can be important to establishing the feeling of trust that then allows you to engage in larger leaps of, say, arms control negotiations or things like that. Your basic argument in the paper is that while brinkmanship introduces chance, it doesn't eliminate the factor of choice. And there's a lot of psychological and emotional variables that need to be taken into consideration there. Um, and the takeaway is kind of like, nuclear stability is not as stable as we often think. So if that's the takeaway, you guys also discuss some things that can be done, some some policy changes, some pursuit of some constraints on what decision making makers can do unilaterally. Do you want to talk about any of those mitigating options? Yeah, I mean I think that um you know, there are various things that can be done, but none of them are perfect. Um, with regard to accidents, there are certain things you can do, of course, to reduce the likelihood of accidents. Um, you can, uh, you know, engage in certain kinds of organizational bureaucratic procedures to reduce their likelihood. Um, 
you can um, uh, be more careful with signaling. So leaders talking to the other side, um, the, you know, the example being the, you know, uh, hotline that was set up between the United States and the Soviet Union during Cold War after the Cuban Missile Crisis, so that you don't have miscommunication. Um, those kinds of things can be done with regard to um, uh, accidents. Self-control is harder because I think in many ways, actually what you need to do is change um, electoral systems, right? To change the sort of motivation of people running for office and the self-selection of the kind of people that run for office. Importantly, I do think that there are things you can do to teach people to have better self-control, um, especially better emotional self-control. Some of that is really simple, like teaching people about decision-making strategies and, you know, how to operate under time constraints and things like that. But I also think that um, there are strategies uh, like meditation that actually help people have better emotional regulation and better emotional control. Um, and those are the kinds of things that might make a difference. The problem is the kinds of people who need it are those who are probably least likely to be willing to engage in it. Um, in terms of controlling others, um, you know, the challenge is that lots of leaders um, have more confidence in their ability to control others than they in fact do, right? Richard Nixon was on uh, madman theory during the Vietnam War is a classic example of um, somebody who thought he could manipulate others by appearing to be more emotionally unstable than he was, although he was pretty emotionally unstable. Um, in his case, a lot of it had to do with his alcoholism, right? And so, um, you know, if somebody's like that, then obviously getting control of your substance <laughs> addiction uh, would make a big difference in terms of being able to control yourself. But people overestimate their ability to control others. Um, and uh, that can be a challenge. But again, you know, sort of open communication, um, coming up with better uh, decision making, training. Uh, implementing policies for uh, um, uh, teaching elected leaders how to make better decisions. Uh, all those things, I think, could matter. Um, you know, a simple example is they instituted these policies for hospitals where you have to go through a checklist before certain kinds of surgeries, right? So, if you're getting your left leg amputated, that you have a button on, you know, a sticker on your left leg saying this one, right? It seems super stupid, obvious. Why would you do that? And they implemented it and saved like 100,000 lives within, you know, 10 years. Um, and so there's these very simple kinds of uh, decision making strategies and aids that could make a difference. Again, nothing's going to be perfect, but you can at least um, reduce the risk of uh, accidental chance leading to choice-based responses where, you know, a leader has agency and makes a choice um, that leads to catastrophic results. Tyrion types get a little squirrely when you start a sentence with, they should make a law, but maybe they should make a law that, um, that uh, members of Congress and members of the executive branch have to undergo mandatory meditation training. I'd be very uh, be curious to, to see what that, that would do. <laughs> yeah. Rose McDermott, thank you very much for joining us today. 